just to catch up to speed a little bit, last week we talked about whether Jesus was political, and we said that he was, but not in the way we typically think of politics. So just get that out. (laughs) Yes, Jesus was political in in that he used power, but it wasn't in the way we think of as, uh, you know, worldly, earthly politics. You see, it's most basic. We're going with a definition of politics that uh, kind of goes back to Aristotle. It's an Aristotelian definition of politics. Uh, He kind of wrote the the book on this, the first book on this. Um, It's called Politics, actually. Um, and, And it's about the use of power being for human flourishing. Politics is about the use of power for human flourishing at any level, especially at the level of a bunch of people together in what we would call a nation or something like that. But it also happens at a state level, at a city level, at a smaller level, all levels, the use of power for human good, for flourishing. Now, now, worldly politics almost can't help but manipulate that and abuse and take power for self. There are exceptions to that. And we want Christians to be people who go into that realm and do it in a way that looks like God uses power. And we'll talk about that in a little bit here. But if you think about the use of power in the world in its most basic terms, think about it like this. God made the world. Okay? God created the world. Which, by the way, is a gargantuan use of power. There is no other better example of using power than God creating the world, which is a huge demonstration of his power. And he did that so that we could flourish, so that we could become who he created us to be, so that we could have a relationship with him. That's uh, one of the ultimate examples of the use of power. And then Jesus, of course, continues that work. And he does it in a way, though, that's unexpected and different than people thought it would be. And that's what we're going to talk about a lot today. We're talking about the fact that Jesus came, and and even though we messed up creation, even though we messed up creation with sin, what Jesus did meant that we could still flourish and live with God forever. So that's what we're going to look at today in these passages. And so we ask the question today, how was Jesus political? How did he use power for the good of people? How did he do that? And the way he did that that we'll see is fundamentally different. It's fundamentally different. It's almost upside down from what we expect of the use of power and even what they expected of Jesus. It's a counterintuitive, upside down way of using resources, of looking at the world. And it redefines how we think of engagement with the powers of the world. If we follow Jesus' example of the use of power, it redefines how we think about the use of our resources in engaging with the powers of the world. Jump in at Mark 10. We've got a lot of good Bible content to get to today. This is a great passage in Mark 10. Uh, Some think it's perhaps one of the central themes that we'll get to here, and I'll show you that later on. But jump in at verse 32 in Mark 10. We're going to be in 32 through 40. Five, and this passage helps us understand the principle behind how Jesus used his power. Verse 32, they were on the road, this is the larger group of disciples just beyond the twelve, not just the twelve, going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem from all directions is up. And Jesus, it says, Mark tells us, was walking ahead of him. Jesus is leading the way, which is important as we'll see. It says they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Now they're amazed and they're afraid uh, because they all know 
that where they're headed in Jerusalem is where all the Jewish authorities are. The most powerful uh, of the Jewish authorities live in Jerusalem. And they are a fiercely opposed bunch when it comes to Jesus. They, they are fiercely opposed to Jesus and his ministry. And yet, he's leading them straight there. <laughs> I mean, this is like, I don't know if you remember the scene from Star Wars, but I remember the first time I, I saw Star Wars, Luke is leading the rebellion straight into the Death Star, and I'm thinking, what are you doing? This is certain death. The disciples are sitting there feeling like, you're taking us right into death, Jesus. And so that's why they're all sort of amazed, afraid. And so Jesus, he brings them alongside, and he says this, verse 32, he takes them alongside and starts to explain to them. He says, Taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Mark says taking the twelve again because he had been explaining this before. This is actually the third time. The third time Jesus explains to them in three chapters, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer and die. It's the third time he's been trying to tell them. And he says this, he says it again, verse 33. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, the religious power, and they will condemn him to death, speaking about himself, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now here's what's going on here. Jesus is leading the way toward death. And in so doing, he is showing his followers what real power looks like. What real power looks like in the kingdom of God, which is entirely counterintuitive. It feels opposite to all other forms of worldly power that they were used to, that we're used to. Jesus is saying, what I'm about to do, what I'm about to show you is going to redefine your understanding of power and how it works. In other words, he's going to go right into the Death Star of sorts, he's going to go right into there and say, the world can kill me, and yet it cannot kill me. The world can kill me, and yet it's not going to be able to kill me. The disciples had seen nothing like this before. You see, their understanding was that Jesus had come to restore Israel's worldly might and political and religious power so that they could restore the glory of the fallen throne of David and crush the Romans. That's what most of them are really hoping for here, which is why, in the next verse, James and John ask the question that they do. It says this, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, this is verse 35, came up to him, to Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They're sort of like saying, give me a blank check, Jesus. Before they even ask for what the request might be or the question, they say, but just promise me you'll, 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 you'll help me out. And, of course, Jesus, I would you know, say something sarcastic like, what am I to you, just some cosmic genie? But, of course, Jesus responds with grace, Verse 36, and says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. They're saying, hey, Jesus, help us out when the time comes. When you finish establishing this kingdom that we're all hoping that you establish, give me a, give me a little kickback. Help me out, will you? That's what James and John are doing here. They said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, again, being gracious, <laughs> I would have said, what are you thinking? You do not know what you're asking. 
He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Those are symbols of, of suffering and death, cup and, and baptism. And they said to him, they said to him, we are able. I, we can do this. If you know some about how Jesus names James and John, he calls them the sons of thunder. James and John are called the sons of thunder because they puff out their chest. They're like, I can, we can do this, Jesus. Come on, let's do this. And Jesus says, chill out. He says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. In other words, you're going to suffer like I suffer if you follow me. You're indeed going to suffer like I suffer if you really follow me. But, but only God the Father selects the Messiah, and only the Messiah will suffer as I'm about to in taking on the sins of the world. So you can imagine James and John, James and John pulling aside Jesus saying, hey, help us out. The, the ten are not happy. Verse 41, when the ten heard this, when they heard it, they began to be indignant or angry at James and John, and I would be too. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, this is him in front of all the disciples. This is where he explains, this becomes helpful for us, especially today. This is where he explains the principle of humble servant power. He begins to explain the principle of humble servant power and how it works in this new kingdom that Jesus was coming to establish. He says, verse 42, You know, meaning you've experienced, that those who are considered rulers, those who are thought of as rulers of the Gentiles, Lord it over them and their great ones. I imagine Jesus sort of putting that in quotes and their great ones exercise authority over them. And then he says this verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. This is a great statement here. Listen to this. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you. There's no more quotes around great here. He's saying this is real greatness. This is real power. This is how it really works in this kingdom I'm coming to establish. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In the Greco-Roman society where they lived, humility was considered the, the lowest virtue. It was considered sort of the, the most the most small, unimportant virtue. It's it considered the least effective. And Jesus is saying, actually, humility is one of the greatest. It's one of the greatest virtues. True greatness and true power come from serving others, from using resources given to us by God to serve others. That's how it works in this kingdom. That's just, that's just how this works in this new kingdom. In speaking like this, Jesus has redefined success. In the world, as we all know, success looks like getting, receiving, taking credit, gathering security. But in the kingdom of God, it is giving. It is helping. It is serving. It is using the resources that aren't actually ours anyway and won't last past our earthly lives and extending them to be used for the glory of God being made known. Humility is 
how you know it's for the sake of the glory of God and not for you. So this is what Jesus is doing here, and it's exactly the opposite of the way the world works. This humble servant power. And Jesus is telling him all this because he intends to go to the cross. Even in Mark, this happens. We're going to look at it in Matthew. He intends to go to the cross, and he tends to put on full display how this power works. And that's why he marches into Jerusalem and does what he does. Look in Matthew, Matthew 21. We're going to look at all 17 verses in this account here. Matthew 21 through 17. Jesus puts on display his full power on purpose. He says this. Matthew tells us in verse 1. Now when they meaning the large crowd of followers. We know this from the end of Matthew 20, where he calls those followers a large crowd. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, meaning he's approaching the cross, and he came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives, by the way, is on the east side of Jerusalem. And it's a main thoroughfare into the city. And it overlooks the temple. So they're closing in on Jerusalem. And Jesus has plans for what this entry is going to look like. And so he sent two disciples, verse 2, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, Bethphage. It's basically a suburb of Jerusalem. Think Chucky or Masaim, I guess. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, there's a password set up here, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, this wasn't an accident, what's going on here. Jesus has walked many hundreds of miles in a public ministry of three years. He had just walked to get to Jerusalem, about 110 miles along a circuitous route from the north in Galilee down to the south in Jerusalem. And there's no place in the gospel that mentions him riding on an animal. Uh, they only speak of him traveling on foot. In fact, he had walked into Jerusalem many times before. And it was the Passover. So it's the largest feast of the year. And, and everybody is coming to that feast. And there are lots of people coming to the city. And there's a Jewish tradition that pilgrims walk into Jerusalem on foot. But this time, Jesus does something different. He was doing so intentionally to make a statement. And we know that's the case because everybody around him, everybody around him watching this scene acted accordingly now they had different kinds of responses as we'll see but everybody there who was around him clearly understood the statement he was making they understood that you don't just go riding into jerusalem on a donkey unless you're a king coming back from battle so that's what jesus does jesus knows exactly what he's doing crystal clear statement a public declaration that he was going to be king but he was going to be a king who took his throne peacefully. A king who acted like a servant. Those are words that don't go together. Servant and king. Humble and powerful. But that's exactly how Jesus does it. And that's how Matthew understands it here, which is why in verses 4 and 5 he says this. He's quoting from Isaiah and Zechariah. This took place, meaning this whole scene that's going on here, not just the preceding couple of verses. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets the tenth time in Matthew that he says this, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast. 
of burden. Now, Matthew quotes from Zechariah to show uh, that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was, he was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. You see in these passages that uh, Matthew's drawing from in Isaiah and Zechariah, the context is a promise that God will send the Messiah to redeem his people, but he will do so by bringing peace. In Ephesians 2:14, looking back in the life of Jesus, Paul says that Jesus brings peace in the flesh. He says that he himself is our peace. That's different than what most at the time expected. It's, it's different than what they were thinking was going to happen in Jesus. I mean, they wanted an earthly king, small k, to restore Israel's fortunes, their political might, so they could crush the Romans, so they'd all say, yay, together. <laughs> We're in charge again. Sound like any parallels today for us? How much hope do we have in these symbols? Do we really think that anybody's going to come along and bring what our heart's desire truly needs, what it really wants, what our heart's desire really is. Same kind of thing going on then as, in, as now for many of us. Expecting, expecting a lamb, expecting somebody, a sort of Messiah for us, really, to come and establish something for us that, that makes us have a sense of safety and security that, that, that we don't have. Mark my words, I promise. The best politician who's ever lived, who may not have yet lived, could establish the most peaceful, small-k kingdom on the world ever. That's not going not gonna to remotely compare to what the Lamb can do. Don't just see in these people around Jesus, oh, they, they missed it, they, they were so wrong, they didn't get anything. There are parallels for us. That was a little parenthetical help we'll call it so that's the scene the disciples carry it out verses 6 and 7 they carry out Jesus plans for this entry the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them and then verse 7 they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them now notice here after this scene sort of set up by Matthew the three responses in verses 8 through 17 Three different kinds of responses we'll see here in verses 8 through 17 here. These are responses to the issue of Jesus coming as king. Verse 8, most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. These are people saying, come on, Jesus, we're ready for you. Please come. They might not have understood everything that it meant, but they had hearts open for Jesus coming as king. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him, these are the same people here, were shouting, Hosanna, which means save us, to the son of David, which is a messianic term. Save us, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is the first group. This is the first group that were acknowledging that Jesus had come and that he was doing what Scripture had promised, what God had said would happen, what the prophecies were promising. This is the first group of responses. Verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, 
Good question. Who is this? Who is this? The whole city was stirred up, it said. Who is this? In the beginning of Matthew, when Jesus was first born, he uses the same word for stirred up to describe Herod's response at Jesus being born. Who is this? The whole city was stirred up, it says. And it's Passover, which means, which means that the biggest Jewish festival of the year is going on. So the city was loaded with people, it was crowded, and, and everyone knew that Jesus had come. And the crowds were asking the question, who is this? The crowd said, verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. No, nothing about save us, nothing about son of David. This is just uh, uh, an admission that this is the prophet. This is just saying, eh, it's that guy Jesus. He's been here before. He's been all over doing prof- prophetic kinds of things. They just sort of shrug their shoulders and say, it's Jesus, the prophet again. That's the second group. That's the second response. And then as we'll see in 12 to 17, here's the third response. These are those who rejected what Jesus was doing, which is why Matthew includes this scene here, starting in verse 12. Pick it up there. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So he comes and he sees the temple, this temple which was meant to be a place of worship for Jew and Gentile alike. He saw the temple being manipulated for personal gain. In other words, Jesus comes, he sees the temple, and he sees the power that it has being abused for personal gain. And so he says this, verse 13. He calls it into question right there. This is a great verse. He says to them, it is written, my house shall be, a, shall be called a house of prayer. The, the quotation is a house of prayer for the nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. But you make it a den of robbers, he says. So in another intentional act that showed that the kingdom had arrived, that what he was doing as a king who was bringing this power of humility, he began to restore the temple right then to its rightful purpose. Look at the next verse. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Jesus, of course, knew exactly what he was doing. You you see, according to 2 Samuel, King David had excluded the blind and the lame from God's house. And here is Jesus welcoming them. He's healing them. He's saying, come worship God in this place, you broken people. I'm I'm here to usher in a new day where my power is used to welcome the broken. We know this was a big deal. We know this was Jesus calling into question those who rejected him. Because look at their response. Verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes saw, listen to what Matthew calls it, the wonderful things, they didn't, but Matthew did. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, they were angry. And they said to him, do you hear what these people are saying? Do you hear, Jesus, that they're calling you king? And Jesus said to them, this is great, yes, (laughs) have you never read, which they've read, they know, Psalm 8, 
He quotes Psalm 8 too. Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. In other words, even the children can see it, but you can't. Leaving them, he went out of the city of Bethany, to, to Bethany and lodged there. So here's the scene where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey over coats and branches during Passover. Cities packed. Biggest feast of the year. Biggest festival of the year. And the followers of Jesus are crying out, Save us, son of David. And he does that as a way of declaring a peaceful coup of the world's powers. This is how it works with Jesus. Verse 10 says, The whole city was stirred up, asking the question, Who is this? Matthew wants us to ask ourselves the same question. Who is this? Who is this who comes like this? A peaceful coup that overthrows not just the existing religious powers, but calls into question all of the world's powers. So many thought he had come to establish their kingdom. I fear many of us believe the Lamb has come to establish our kingdom. To establish a kingdom that looks a lot like we want Him to. That looks a lot like the existing structures with which we are comfortable and we'd rather build up for ourselves. Yes, come, Jesus, into my heart and continue to make in me more secure what I already call secure. Jesus didn't come to do that. I'm sorry. He came to establish a kingdom by using his power to save them. Which is why the Lamb established his kingdom by dying. This is the only kingdom that has ever happened where the king establishes his power by dying to save his own people. No other kingdom to which we give ourselves will do that for you, friends. Don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. The lamb establishes his kingdom by dying to save his people. In this passage we just looked at, there are three responses to this question of who is Jesus. The one who acknowledges the kingdom of the Lamb is the one that says, Lord, save us. That's the one. Those who humble themselves can have a power that saves them. The apathy and the anger. It's just that prophet Jesus. <laughs> Do you hear what they're claiming about you, Jesus? The anger and the apathy end up being a rejection of that power. So what's your life's answer to the question, who is this? Matthew asks it, what's your life's answer to the question, who is this? Because there's an eternal difference between the humility that says, Lord, save us, and the apathy or anger of the crowds and religious establishment. Who is this? What does your life answer to that question? Because, friends, we have been given in this life 
We've been given an opportunity to do what Jesus did, to live as he lived by the humble and the selfless use of power. Here's a truth you can take to the bank. The second you grasp for a trajectory of self, the second you, uh, the second you grasp for a trajectory of selfish worldly power, you begin to relinquish kingdom power and you begin to seek to establish your own kingdom that flies in the face of the kingdom of the Lamb. The second you grasp for a kingdom of self with earthly power terms, you relinquish kingdom power. You relinquish kingdom power that God wants you to use to free the oppressed, to do what he did. Which means, friends, that your life's resources, every one of them you can name, in whatever category you can name, your life's resources are meant to be a source of power for establishing that the Lamb is King. That's a godly definition of our life's resources. They're meant to be a source of power for establishing that Jesus is King. You may not think you have a whole lot of power. I understand that feeling. We all have a sense that we can't we can't do as much as we want or, or think we should be able to. But friends, everything in your life is a resource that has power. Your life's resources are meant to be a source of power for establishing that Jesus is king, which is why this is the question. This is the question for us today. Are your life's resources a vote for the truth that Jesus is king? Are your life's resources a vote for the truth that Jesus is king? If the truth that your life's resources are for the sake of the the king, if that truth hasn't made it yet to your relationships, your marriage, your sex life, your education, your wallet, if the truth that Jesus is king hasn't yet made it to those areas of your life, then maybe far more than you know, you are like those apathetic or angry people who just shrug their shoulders or who shake their fists at Jesus and say, you're not getting this. No, no, Jesus. You're not getting this piece of my life's resources. Which, make no mistake, is a vote. It's a vote in a kind of kingdom. Do not be deceived. Because, friends, you don't own it anyway. Your life is not your own anyway. Jesus came saying, I came to humbly serve your needs. Which means he used eternal resources to save us. Jesus used eternal resources to make us his own, to save us. The least we can do is to use ours to continue the work of his kingdom. When you use your resources for his kingdom, you do what Jesus did. Friends, our lives are all actually His. They're all actually His anyway. Let's pray.